0: Good evening, class, and welcome. We're listening to a song as usual for this, our first class via video for the screw tape letters during this first week of Easter 2020. And this is a great Easter anthem, and I'm going to turn the volume back up and see if any of you all may be able to recognize what it is. If you Don't know the song, you might be able to recognize who's doing the singing since we've heard them multiple times in class before. It is, of course, the choir of King's College, Cambridge, uh, the choir that is resident in the chapel that Lewis thought was the most beautiful place to worship that he had ever encountered. It is a glorious chapel, and this piece is in a particularly glorious rendition talking about Hosanna to the Son of David coming from Psalm 118, uh, one of the great Messianic Psalms that is part of the whole Holy Week and Easter journey. Easter, for Lewis, was the principal feast of of the Christian year and one that he reveled in each year. Easter takes a prominent place in Lewis's writings, and indeed there is an entire devotional guide preparation for Easter that's been drawn from Lewis's writings. One of the things that's interesting, though, is that for Lewis, he very often connects Easter and the incarnation, that Jesus is rising to new life on Easter day. For him, is very much tied up in all of God's plan of salvation. One of the great things about Easter at King's College is that each year there is a beautiful service that is broadcast from there. And I would commend to you during this time of quarantine to check out some of these recordings of the great anthems and scripture lessons of Easter coming from King's College. Some of you who heard uh, the daily devotional that I did for St. Philip's last week on the great hymn Panja Lingua might be interested in some of the backstory of that that's connected to King's College. Interestingly, back in 1920, there was a piece called the St. Mark Passion commissioned by the chaplain of King's College that is drawn from that hymn, Pangea Lingua, woven around the words of the Passion uh, as expressed in St. Mark's Gospel. Part of what's interesting about that, it was commissioned by the chaplain Eric Milner White, whose name you may remember because we've talked about him in class before. He was a young clergyman who had gone into World War I, right out of seminary and had been horrified by what he saw, but had done the best that he could to minister to the needs of the men in the trenches, men like the young C.S. Lewis. And after the war, after the armistice in 1918, he was appointed chaplain at King's College. And as you may remember, as we've discussed, both Oxford and Cambridge lost between 20 and 35 percent of their students, recent graduates in the war, because many of those young men were officers who led the charges out of the trenches and lost their lives and were buried in the fields of France. So when Eric Milner White became the chaplain, the university was plunged in despair and he struggled for ways to try to bring the hope of the gospel. And one of the first ideas he had was to trace the great good news of God's salvation, starting in the book of Genesis and going right up through St. John's gospel, that glorious first chapter about the incarnation. And he wove this around some beautiful carols and Christmas hymns. And this became what we know today as the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols part of the Christmas season around the world. But what's less known is that Milner White did something similar at Easter, not long after uh, he commissioned this piece by Charles Wood to recount the glory and hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he took those words from Mark's Gospel and wove that beautiful hymn, Ponja Lingua, written by Venantius Fortunatus way back in the year 569, and incorporated them together. So, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, I would encourage you to do so, and I'll include a link to that uh, on the website with this uh, program. So, we are back to the screw tape letters, and you may recall that we are in a section of screw tape where Lewis is dealing with the topics of love and sex and marriage and contrasting the way that Scripture views these things, the way they're viewed in the kingdom of God and how they're viewed by the culture and how this presents one of the great opportunities for Satan and for Screwtape to get under the skin, as it were, of the patient and to tempt him away from the things of God. So as we begin this evening and get ready to jump in, let us begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for the gift and joy of this Easter season. We pray that as we engage with these screw tape letters, that you would open our hearts to your truth, that you would help us to find ways that we can develop habits to annoy the devil. Lord, we pray that you would help change the way that we think, that we would not be conformed to the wisdom of this world, but instead we would be transformed by the revelation and the wisdom of the kingdom of God. We pray that you would guide us this time through your Holy Spirit, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you won't have the PowerPoint in front of you on the video, but it will be up on the website. So I would encourage you, uh, if you watch the video, maybe to watch that on your phone or to pull up both the video and the PowerPoint on your computer and do a split screen. Really, whatever works for you uh, is best. You could just watch and then look at the PowerPoint later or vice versa. But as always, let us begin by saying together our scripture verse from Ephesians. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And as we've talked about before, there are some great reasons to study this classic book of Lewis's written 60 years ago, but I would argue even more relevant today than when it was written. First, lessons on understanding the battle in which we find ourselves. Second, lessons on thinking Christianly and learning to develop a Christian worldview. Lessons on the psychology of temptation. Lessons on habits to cultivate, to deepen our faith in Christ and then lessons on living a boldly Christian life. As we've talked about each week, one of the great subtexts of this work is the subtext about habits. Habits are the things that make up our lives. They are the stuff of our day-to-day lives. And particularly during this time of quarantine and social distancing, we become aware of the things that used to take up our time that we can't do now or the things that continue to take up our time that may not be things that help draw us closer to the kingdom of heaven. So it's a great time to be thinking about habits. And Lewis in Screwtape reminds us that habits that are things that lead us toward the kingdom of God are one of the very best defenses that we can have against the assaults of the enemy. And as we've talked about from that great book, The Common Rule, Only when your habits are constructed to match your worldview do you become someone who doesn't know about loving God and neighbor, but someone who actually loves God and neighbor. The time in which we find ourselves is a great time to consider that deep truth. So I want us to review some of the habits of the past several letters. So starting back in the letter 13, Uh, That first great habit that's commended in the Book of Common Prayer, as soon as you become aware you have strayed from God, repent and return to the Lord. Embrace real pleasures that focus your heart and your mind on beauty, truth, and goodness. Cultivate those pleasures and gifts that are part of God's design for you as we said from that great movie chariots of fire and the great scottish missionary eric little when i run i can feel his pleasure and if you haven't used some of your quarantine to watch that movie i strongly recommend it to you fourthly avoid seeking after worldly trends and pleasures at the expense of what you really love we are all too quick to conform to the whims of culture and of society, uh, to our great detriment, to embrace those things that are really not things that lead us toward godliness, or even things that we love or enjoy, but things that are thought of as cool in the moment. And we'll talk a little bit about that in tonight's letter. And then fifth, be proactive in forming new habits based upon repentance, rather than wallowing in self-absorption. And two truths about spiritual warfare from that great letter 13, God loves you enormously as an individual. And the more that you lean into your relationship with God, the more you will authentically become your true self. More on that in tonight's letter as well. Then from letter 14, practice hourly and daily dependence on God. Not just Sunday morning dependence, but remembering that you are his as you walk through the week. Cultivate and practice true humility, a radical focus on God and others rather than yourself. This season in which we find ourselves is a great time to focus on what can you do to encourage others during this time of quarantine. Thirdly, avoid narcissism, especially wallowing in self-contempt and selfish malaise. Again, we provide many opportunities in this season for self-absorption, for wallowing, for being sad about all those things that we can't do. But we have this gift of time that can be turned toward the kingdom of God, toward encouragement, prayer, note writing, sending text, catching up with friends, prayer, all sorts of things if we avoid that trap of wallowing. Fourth, practice joyful celebration of wonder and others in nature and life that leads to gratitude. If you are here in Charleston, you know that we are experiencing one of the most beautiful springtimes in recent memory. And one of the things that's so sad in our city at the moment is that the economy is crashing because we don't have any tourists. But the silver lining of that is that the streets are empty and the beauty and glory of springtime bursting forth in Charleston is a wonder to behold. So don't let all of the focus on the bad news about coronavirus or the economy stop you from experiencing the joy and wonder of springtime, of a city that's quiet enough where you can hear the birds sing again, and you can hear the rustle of the breeze in the tree leaves. And through that, fifthly, cultivate a high appreciation of the doctrine of creation, that God has made all of these wonders with which we find ourselves surrounded. Then from letter 15, consciously reject tortured confidence and, sorry, tortured fear and stupid confidence as states of mind. We go back and forth between these extremes, and we need to remember that God created us to attend to two things only, eternity, his kingdom, and the present. In this time where we're so prone to anxiety and worry about the future and speculation about when will things get back to normal, it is a great time to embrace the joys and the pleasures and the blessings of this present moment. Thirdly, we are to proactively live in this present moment. It is the only place where we are truly offered freedom, actuality and agency to do things in this moment, to live into that glorious kingdom of God. Fourthly, cultivate gratitude and love and avoid some of those seven deadly sins we talked about. Fear, avarice, lust, unhealthy ambition. Work hard for the good of posterity, but trust God for the results and dwell in the moment with patience and gratitude. If you're still working in this time or if you're a student overloaded with project work, remember that your life does not consist of Zoom calls and of projects and of papers and online lectures, but that God is calling you to consider the truth and beauty and goodness of his kingdom. Pray for virtues to meet the challenges that lie ahead. One of the things about a crisis is it exposes our faith in its strength or in its weakness. This is a great time to pray and to lean into, seeking to develop godly virtues. And then lastly, embrace natural happiness as a good thing. That letter ends with that terrible line from Screwtape where he says, But after all, why should the creature be happy? So we can annoy the devil just by being happy and these moments when we can't be together at church embrace the happiness of being able to sit as a family and worship together being that family that so often is split up in different directions or meal times together the gift of enjoying a meal around the table so often we eat out these days but in this time we're sent back to our family table perhaps to rediscover the blessings that are present there from the 16th letter and this is a hard one in our current time but certainly a time where we can learn to appreciate what we're missing at the moment and resolve never to take it for granted again the first habit commit to faithful attendance and involvement in a church Cultivate humility in a teachable spirit while seeking to build New Testament community. Seek after the whole counsel of God with a high view of Scripture. Encourage clergy leadership that weds the proclamation of true biblical belief and Christian love. And I want to just say a word uh, at the risk of sounding slightly self-serving about encouraging clergy right now. Many of you are friends with clergy, not only in your own church, but in other congregations. And this is a great time to encourage your clergy friends. Most clergy thrive on the ministry that they're able to engage in with their congregations. Those deeply meaningful personal interactions and deeply meaningful leading of an entire congregation of folks in the worship of our lord and savior jesus christ and we have been cut off from that just as you have but it's particularly i think difficult for some of the clergy so if you know clergy who are your friends both in charleston and other places do reach out to them and encourage them during this time it will be a blessing to them and to you the fifth habit hold fast to truth But lightly to preferences in essentials unity in non essentials diversity in all things charity and then letter eighteen remember talking about this as we were progressing through Lent and the whole idea that we've lost the seven deadly sins indeed much of the church has lost the very concept of sin seeking to embrace the I'm okay you're okay of our culture and that faith is only about self-actualization well my friends that idea is found nowhere in Scripture we are reminded that we are sinners and that we are deeply in need of a savior who will come and transform us through his resurrection life. So that means this first habit is an apt one. Practice regular self-examination with respect to the seven deadly sins. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust. Secondly, practice kindness, and self-forgetfulness, especially toward those serving you. Again, this is a time to really lean into this, where very often those serving us, whether in grocery stores or medical care or whatever it might be, are doing it at great risk to themselves. We owe it as Christians to our faith and our witness to be those people who are most expressing our gratitude and thanks, both verbally and in concrete ways of helping them. Thirdly, keep fleshly appetites in check. Do not pursue them as an end in themselves. Cultivate equanimity and good humor, especially in stressful situations. This is a great word to those who suddenly find themselves with households full of children or grown children 24-7, when we're used to having a break from them, at least during the school day. Equanimity and good humor are great things to cultivate in a time where it's easy to be impatient, selfish, and short-tempered. And lastly, practice generosity in your actions and with your possessions. Again, this crisis provides a wonderful moment for that to think about who God puts before us, who is part of our daily life, who may really be suffering during this time, those who have lost their jobs, or who own their own businesses where the business is struggling, figure out ways to encourage and reach out to those folks and help them. And now moving into these letters where screw tape. Is after us in terms of our views of love and sex and marriage. Views that our culture has gotten so wrong compared to the scriptural standard. So from letter 18, practice the countercultural scriptural standard of complete abstinence or unmitigated monogamy. The culture says if it feels good, do it but that is not what the scriptures teach us. Adopt an other focused paradigm of love that refuses to act as if love is a zero-sum game. Scripture is all about love that is self-sacrificial, not about love that seeks its own fulfillment. Our culture is telling us all the time that it's all about us, it's all about our needs, about whether we're fulfilled, about whether we're self-actualized. And if we're not, then we should move on to another relationship. That is not the scriptural teaching. Thirdly, resist the cultural understanding that believes that feelings of being in love are the foundation of marriage. Feelings of being in love can be a beautiful thing, but they are just that, feelings. And feelings are by nature fickle and fleeting, and they cannot serve as the foundation of a marriage that endures. As long as we believe that feelings are the foundation, when the feelings go away or they suffer under the weight of the challenges of life, we will begin to believe that we have made a mistake in marriage and that perhaps if we can get out of this marriage, then we will truly find that soulmate that will meet all of our needs. But my friends, that is an idolization of marriage and putting marriage and another human being in the place that only God can fulfill. Only God can meet all of our needs. And this idea that feelings rather than commitment, and self-sacrifice, and God himself and our relationship with him are the foundations of marriage. If we buy into the cultural myth, we will find that our marriages begin to fall apart. Fourthly, uphold the virtue of chastity rather than using feelings of being in love as an excuse for serial promiscuity. We're taught by our culture that we need to follow these feelings, because to do otherwise is to be inauthentic, to not be who we truly are. But the problem with that is that it's based in a worldview that says we are simply animals, that we are creatures of our instincts. One of the things that differentiates humans from animals is that we have a soul, a spirit, a conscience that tells us that acting on instinct is not always the right thing to do. Our appetites are just that, appetites, and there are sometimes when it is right to satisfy them, and other times when it is appropriate to resist and subdue them. Otherwise, we reduce ourselves to living like a feral cat or feral dog who's enslaved to its instincts and appetites. Fifthly, cultivate and practice a biblical understanding of love. Love is expressed in chapter 13 of First Corinthians. Love is patient and kind. Love does not seek its own way. It keeps no record of wrongs. But even more than that, it is exemplified in what Jesus says in John in those Last Supper discourses. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As I have loved you... So you are to love one another. And look at the way that Jesus loves. A great exercise in this time of quarantine is to read all the way through a gospel and to look at how Jesus loves others. But what you will notice as you go through the gospel, particularly if you read it in a single sitting, is that everything that Jesus does is about others. It is not about himself. The biblical way of love is the self-sacrificial way, the servant-hearted way, and it is the only way that brings joy. And then from letter 19, seek to understand God as the creator of love and daily abide in the love of God. It is only when we understand the depth of God's love for us that we can begin love others in the way that he wants us to. And that leads to the second habit, share God's love with others, especially those who do not believe or who do not understand it. Remember that example of the early Christians whose love for one another was an astonishment to the pagan Roman world, whose love for one another caused these pagan leaders to look and say, see how those Christians love one another. This is a great time in the midst of this crisis to show that love, to be different from the world, to not be embracing anxiety, but to show the love that we have for God, to talk about the love that he has for us and for each person whom he has created. Thirdly, resolve to take any state of mind feeling and experience it through the perspective of the kingdom of God so as to glow, grow closer to him. Again, great words for this time that we are so often stuck in the midst of our anxieties about the situation. But what we're called to do is to take our feelings and experience them through the perspective of the kingdom of God. To set our minds on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. To set our minds at that heavenly place where we look at this situation through the perspective of God's kingdom and what we might be supposed to learn from this time. Fourthly, understand marriage as God's invention going all the way back to the book of Genesis. And it's an invention, a creation of God, a blessing of God, to be pursued only in a Christian context and not just for feeling and love. One of the great problems in our culture is that we have this idea that feelings or being attracted to someone by their physical beauty should be the basis of a lifelong commitment in marriage. And as we said earlier, that is a foundation that is built on the sand. It cannot endure, but it is all over our culture. And as Christians, we need to resist it, not just personally, but to help those whom we love to understand that the love of God and the expression of love that God calls us to in marriage Is one that is based on serving him and serving one another not based on this idea that there's some soulmate out there who's designed to fulfill us. Certainly marriage is joyful but that is only experienced when we come to that place of knowing that it is all about serving and loving one another as Christ loved and served us as expressed first by his washing the feet of his disciples as an example for us where Jesus says he does this to be an example of how we should love one another and then saying greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends and not just saying those words but then the very next day dying on the cross to show us the full extent of his love that is the prayer book says, that the whole world might come within the reach of his saving embrace. Which brings us to letter 20. I'm going to read this and I encourage you to follow along and if you've got your book in front of you to mark those passages that really speak to you. My dear Wormwood, I note with great displeasure that the enemy has for the time being put a forcible end to your direct attacks on the patient's chastity. You ought to have known that he always does that in the end, and you ought to have stopped before you reached that stage. For as things are, your man has now discovered that those dangerous attacks don't last forever. Consequently, you cannot use again what is, after all, our best weapon. The belief of ignorant humans that there's no hope of getting rid of us except by yielding. I suppose you've tried persuading him that chastity is unhealthy. I haven't yet got a report from you on young women in the neighborhood. I should like it at once, for if we can't use his sexuality to make him unchaste, we must try to use it for the promotion of a desirable marriage. In the meantime, I would like to give you some hint about the type of woman, I mean the physical type, which he should be encouraged to fall in love with if falling in love is the best we can manage. In a rough and ready way, of course, this question is decided for us by spirits far deeper down in the lower archy than you and I. It is the business of these great masters to produce in every age a general misdirection of what may be called sexual taste. This they do by working through the small circle of popular artists, dressmakers, actresses, and advertisers who determine the fashionable type. The aim is to guide each sex away from those members of the other with whom spiritually helpful, happy, and fertile marriages are most likely. Thus, we have for many centuries triumphed over nature to the extent of making certain secondary characteristics of the male, such as the beard, disagreeable to nearly all the females, and there's more in that than you might suppose. As regards the male taste, we have varied a good deal. At one time, we have directed it to the statuesque and aristocratic type of beauty, mixing men's vanity with their desires and encouraging the race to breed chiefly from the most arrogant and prodigal women. At another, we have selected an exaggeratedly feminine type, faint and languishing, so that folly and cowardice and all the general falseness and littleness of mind are on the opposite tack. The age age of jazz has succeeded the age of the waltz, and we now teach men to like women whose bodies are scarcely distinguishable from those of boys. Since this is a kind of beauty even more transitory than most, we thus aggravate the female's chronic horror of growing old with many excellent results and render her less willing and less able to bear children. And that is not all. We have engineered a great increase in the license with which society views the nude, the representation of the apparent nude whether it is in its exhibition in art or on the stage or on the bathing beach. It is all a fake, of course. The figures in the popular art are falsely drawn. The real women in bathing suits or tights are actually pinched in and propped up to make them appear firmer or more slender or more boyish than nature allows a full-grown woman to be. Yet at the same time, The modern world is taught to believe that it is being frank and healthy and getting back to nature. As a result, we are more and more directing the desires of men to something which does not exist. Making the role of the eye in sexuality more and more important, and at the same time making its demands more and more impossible. What follows, you can easily forecast. That is the general strategy of the moment. But inside that framework, you will still find it possible to encourage your patient's desires in one of two directions. You will find, if you look carefully into any human's heart, that he is haunted by at least two imaginary women, a terrestrial and an infernal Venus and that his desire differs qualitatively according to its object. There's one type for which his desire is such as to be naturally amenable to the enemy, readily mixed with charity, readily obedient to marriage, colored all through with that golden light of reverence and naturalness which we detest. However, There is another type which he desires brutally and desires to desire brutally, a type best used to draw him away from marriage altogether, but which even within marriage, he would tend to treat as a slave or an idol or an accomplice. His love for the first might involve what the enemy calls evil, but only accidentally. The man would wish that she was not someone else's wife and be sorry that he could not love her lawfully. But in the second type, the felt evil is what he wants. It is the tang and the flavor which he is after. In the face, it is the visible animality or sulkiness or craft or cruelty which he likes. And in the body, something quite different from what he ordinarily calls beauty. Something he may, even in a sane hour, describe as ugliness but which by our art can be made to play on the raw nerve of his private obsession. The real use of the infernal Venus is no doubt as a prostitute or mistress, but if your man is a Christian and if he has been well-trained in nonsense about irresistible and all-excusing love, he can be induced to marry her, and that is very well worth bringing about. You will have failed as regards fornication and solitary vice, but there are other and more indirect methods of using a man's sexuality to his undoing. And by the way, they are not only efficient, but delightful. The unhappiness produced is of a very lasting and exquisite kind. Your affectionate uncle, uncle screw Tape. So, this is a great letter, and one that is so relevant for our culture today, one even more relevant than the time in which Lewis was writing, because this whole emphasis on appearance and outward appearance is the most important thing. The whole concept of the trophy wife, or the trophy beefcake younger husband, the whole idea of what beauty is, is one that has become front and center in our culture. This whole idea of staying young forever that is fueled not only the exercise movement, but diet and all of that, when it is always focused on trying to look good, shows how much we've bought in to what Tape is talking about here. There is a video clip that I've attached which will show you exactly what Lewis is talking about of women who have been pinched in and propped up in order to look more beautiful. The whole thing that advertisers and pornographers use in objectifying both the female and these days, even the male body, as an object of lust people who never really looked like that, but through the magic of the camera and technology can become a physical ideal, which is unattainable for anyone. So let's move to the habits to annoy the devil from letter 20. The first habit, hold fast to the truth that Satan's attacks do not last forever and stand firm against yielding. You will remember screw tape, berates Wormwood for having lost this weapon by focusing so much on attacking the patient that eventually the enemy, God, put a stop to the attack and the patient realized that Satan can't always get him. There are two great scriptural truths about this I want to share with you. The first from James 4, 7. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then again from 1 Corinthians 10:13, No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Satan wants us to believe that there's no way to avoid temptation other than to yield to it, so we might as well just get it over with and give in. Nothing is further from the truth, and part of the idea of cultivating habits of resistance is to develop our spiritual strength that the Lord desires to give us through that full armor of God that we talked about in our opening verse. The whole idea of standing firm against the devil requires that we be equipped and dressed in the armor of God. The second habit, cultivate an identity that is grounded in your being made in the image of God and resist cultural pressure to define yourself primarily in terms of sexual desires we live in a culture that is in full revolt against this idea the idea that god made each one of us that we are made uniquely in god's image that we are made male and female and that there is glory in god's creation and that we find joy in living into who our creator made us to be that is gone now the whole idea is that we look into ourselves to somehow find ourselves and to express our identity. Much of this confusion you can see in the whole idea of what has happened to gender. No longer is it male and female the way that God has made us, but it is in how we choose to define ourselves. We also see that so much of identity, all the labels of identity, all of these different choices on forms about gender, all have to deal with sexual preference. They elevate sexuality to the most important descriptor of who we are as individuals. But yet scripture tells us the most important thing by far is that we are made in God's image, that we are given good gifts that we are made to live in his light and that we are made to serve others and to give glory to him. But unfortunately, all of that is lost in the current cultural conversation. And it is all too easy to miss out on the truth of what Romans 12 tells us. Romans 12 tells us to present our bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship, do not be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is true and acceptable and perfect. Some of the scripture that we should meditate on to understand this habit to annoy the devil comes all the way back from the book of Genesis in the first chapter, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Note that God repeats twice that we are made in his image, that we are made to be creators, that we are made with gifts, that we are made to make beauty, to revel in it, to experience love, to serve. And then in this great passage from 1 Corinthians 6, which is a terrific chapter on this topic, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about the fact that we are raised with Christ, A great thought for Easter week and reminds us of who we are as his, redeemed, bought at cost, countless cost. Every person bought at countless cost. Christ giving himself while we were yet sinners. So no person can be objectified and used as an object. And then from Psalm 31:39. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And then from Colossians 3, that same chapter that talks about setting our minds on things above where Christ is, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, it is a reminder that in the salvation of Jesus Christ, that image of God in us is being made new again. Thirdly, understand that physical beauty is fleeting and resist focusing on outward appearance and being seduced by societal notions of what constitutes beauty. Lewis in the letter talks about how in every age, Satan works to captivate us by outward physical appearance and changes the type of what's considered beautiful. Many of you who have studied art will remember the term Rubenesque, which refers to the voluptuous women in the artwork of Rubens who are often depicted nude, who by our standards today would be thought of as being fat and repulsive. But in Rubin's day, they were considered the icons of beauty. Fast forward to the 1960s and the first supermodel, Twiggy, who was celebrated by her lack of a feminine figure, a classically feminine figure, and celebrated for the boyishness of her look. Androgyny then became the new fashion. But these fashions change every generation. And what Lewis tells us is that Satan wants them to change so that we're seduced by this idea of what the culture finds beautiful and that we are even led into marriage by that rather than what God finds beautiful. Looking on the heart as we see in the choice of David where we are told that Samuel and seeking after the one who is the lord's anointed should follow god's counsel to look not on the outward appearance but to look instead on the heart as proverbs tells us charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting but a woman who fears the lord is to be praised your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Rather, it should be the beauty of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which of, is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. My friends, one of the things that is a great truth of humanity is that we all are going to grow old. We are all growing older, and what used to be beautiful in us is going to fade away in terms of our outward appearance. But that which is beautiful in us, the things that are planted there by the Lord and come from our hearts, will only grow more beautiful as we age. Physical beauty is fleeting as the poets teach and as Lewis tells us over and over and over in his works of fiction. But the beauty of a heart that loves the Lord is something that never fades. The fourth habit, cultivate a scriptural perspective on the opposite sex and be wary of the objectification of the bodies of women or men. Lewis was far ahead of his time in understanding the subjectification that was coming. This idea of looking at people and their bodies is only a way of satisfying our own desires, not just lust, but pride by having someone at our side or on our arm who looks really good in the eyes of the world and thereby increases our status. The scriptural perspective is that we are to regard the opposite sex, to regard everyone we encounter as someone made in the image of God, with infinite dignity, with infinite beauty and possibility, and not ever to be used for the satisfaction of our own desires or as an object to get what we want. Jesus says in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And this goes both ways. It goes for women looking at men as well. It is Jesus' word to us about objectification, that we are to look at each other person as someone precious, Someone with great dignity. Someone made in the image of God. Someone for whom Jesus died on the cross. Which leads us again to 1 Corinthians 6. Flee. There's that great word flee like run from a burning house. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It is a great reminder that especially those of the household of faith are all temples of the Holy Spirit. How dare we objectify them or use them as objects to get what we want. And then fifthly, and perhaps most importantly in these habits, hold fast to a Christian view of marriage based on scriptural standards and resist being led by feelings or by lust. This is one of the great problems of our age and one of the great problems of the church where we may give lip service to the idea of Christian marriage But we have been so influenced and corrupted by the standards of the world that we think marriage is all about us and how we feel. And if we don't feel good or our spouse isn't meeting our needs, then we should trade them in. We've made some sort of mistake. But nothing is further from the Christian idea, the scriptural idea of marriage. It is all rooted in our relationship with God. The verses from Ephesians 5 are key to understanding this, and it is unfortunate that some of these verses about the submission of women to their husbands, taken out of context, have caused many Christians to ignore the profound and life-giving teaching of this chapter. Listen to what Paul says here about the foundations of marriage. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice that. Submit to one another. It's mutual. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh this mystery is profound and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church however let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. My friends, you will see there's so much more here than what we usually think. Most of this direction is given to the husband who is told to love his wife selflessly as Christ loved the church, giving up his life for her to sanctify her i will tell you as a husband as a man that is a daunting challenge it is not about our self-actualization either as men or as women it is not about our feelings it is not about whether our spouse is being the person we think they should be no it is about serving one another submitting to one another out of our reverence for Christ himself, serving one another, trying to help each other, as Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, by each choice that we make to grow closer and closer to our Lord Jesus Christ. Every word we say, every action we take, can lead our spouse closer to who God has made him or her to be, or lead them farther away. And we, when we insist on focusing on our own needs and on our desire to be happy, whatever that means, or our deserving to be happy, something which is nowhere promised in Scripture, we begin on that slippery slope that leads to hurt feelings and then to misunderstanding and then to the walling off of our hearts where love and vulnerability die in the ocean of our self-centeredness. My friends, what Lewis is telling us here is nothing less than what the Lord tells us himself in Scripture. It is the fullness of what Christ desires for us. So in closing, let me remind us of this quotation from Screwtape Letter 8. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and asks why he has been forsaken, and still obeys. May God's peace and blessing be with you this week. Amen.